Well, here we are. Here we are. Science in between. Welcome back. Welcome back. Hey, this is Ollie. And this is Scott. Yeah. And uh, look at that. We did our whole checklist. Look at that. I know. Look at that. We We introduced ourselves. We named the program. We did our, 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 uh, our opening, our catchphrase opening. We did our welcome back and it's episode 62, which, you know, last time was 61. I'm just saying (laughs) last time was 61 and this is 62. Yes. Very good. Very good counting. Let's just leave it at that. I know. Excellent I'm, counting. I'm learning, Scott. Yeah. Somebody Pada, out there Pada is, is, is giggling. <laughs> do you have, Somebody. do you have a, do you, I, you need, you need to get one of those rat tail little braid things. Cause so what? they, cause oh. that's a Padawan thing. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and then they cut it off when you become a Jedi. I'm pretty sure that that would not fly in my house. If I walked around with one of those rat tails. You if know? it did, I would be very disappointed in both you and in, in your lovely wife. Tanya. Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. know if we say people's names on the show. This is like, are, are we Do keeping we? it highly secret or? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. She would not stand for that. So this is, I think this is the, uh, the last episode in our inclusive practices Series. Maybe, maybe, maybe we don't know. Let's, maybe next time know. is more, but, well, but, but this is this the last of our planned episodes. Right. Right. We are. Yeah. Like we have a plan. This was, no. we, we have a plan sort of, I guess. Yeah. And, and so if, if you remember, we, we going back just to kind of review where we've been and, and you know, what we're going to talk about today, we've, we've been talking about like these movements in, in education that are trying to open it up to more populations, trying to be more inclusive. And we started with uh, ambitious science teaching because, you know, that is uh, practices. Those are practices, a set of practices to um, really open up science education to more diverse learners. And, yep. uh, and so we, we spent a, a handful of episodes on those. And then last uh, episode, 61, 61, 61. <sighs> 61. <laughs> oh, it's hurting my heart. I'm showing restraint though. Um, is that what that's called? It is. It is absolutely <laughs> restraint. Uh, we talked uh, about universal design for learning and how universal design for learning is, is really around instructional design and, and designing our courses and our classrooms and assessments and, and all that around, uh, around a series of habits or a series of you know, principles that um, open it up to you know, a variety of learners. Yep. Not from a multiple intelligences, hey, learning styles kind of way, yeah, you know, but from a, hey, you know, people- Because learning have, styles aren't a thing. They're not a thing. They're not, not a, a thing. thing. Even though like so many schools want to like jump into the learning styles, yeah. we're all unicorns. Um, but then today we thought what we would do is take a completely different look at it and look at it from- uh, the actual materials that we use in our classrooms and mm-hmm. there's a movement and it's, this is a new, new movement, but you know, I think that there's going to be some people out there who maybe are not familiar with this. Um, even yeah. though we kind of talked about it and maybe the introduction episode of this is around open educational resources, OER. And if you hear that term OER, that is, um, it's sort of a, it's specific to uh, education, open the open movement is as broad. It is yeah. the open movement is gigantic. Mm-hmm. Like that word "open" has been, uh, you know, open engineering, open computing, yeah. open. You know, there's and th- that itself is 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 a democratizing type of mm-hmm. word. What it's saying is that you know, let's instead of us having stuff be um, like. Uh, there's like open scholarship is a good example too, is that instead of for us developing stuff like creatively and then putting it behind a wall where people have to pay to get access to it. um, Why not just put it out there in the world and then other people can modify it or adapt it to their own needs. So there's a lot of like uh, software like this. So like uh, almost any software that you can imagine that you use some proprietary like word or Mm -hmm. PowerPoint or video editing or audio editing. There's some open source version of that, meaning that some people just for the love of it created a free or very, you know, inexpensive version that people just developed together collaboratively. And then somebody else changed it, modified a little bit. And um, yeah, and this, of- and this goes back to, you know, just to give a couple of sort of pioneer examples. So that one of the first ones being Linux, right, which was that- an open operating system. 
that Linus Torvald uh, invented and then created in this way that it was open and he sort of controlled modifications, but it was open for people to to contribute to. And then probably the one that everybody knows is Wikipedia, right? Yeah. Which is, you know, a, a totally and, and often mocked uh, open resource, right? So, yeah, I just but, wanted to throw those in there. Those that's all designed around the principle or built around the principle that if more people get involved, they'll do good work. Yeah. Like, and, and, you know, that essentially people are, are, are good. They're good right. people. And they're, and if they contribute to it and modify it and, and adapt it, they're going to make it better because, right. you know, while there are people out there that are, you know, jerks who are going to, you know, do bad things and there are people going to Wikipedia and do bad things. But the, the reality is that the stuff that gets put there on Wikipedia, doesn't stay there very long because mm-hmm. the crowd, the wisdom of the crowd, this is actually something you know, you taught me years ago is this, you know, the wisdom of the crowd. There's a whole book around this yep. is that, um, you know, that more people collaborating on something can help it get be better. And so like a thing like Wikipedia comes about and like, I, I would say uh, one of the uh, audio programs, like, I mean, most people use GarageBand or use mm-hmm. something on, uh, but if you're looking for a really inexpensive audio program, Audacity is like, almost like a standard it's like it's it's almost better than a lot of the other software you could get and it's free and it's open and you can download it and use it and yeah and so there's there's some schools um locally have moved completely to open software like there's a district um near near millersville that has switched to all linux-based computers Every piece of software on the computers are all open. So they're using open versions of Word, open versions of PowerPoint. And the, the design or the motivation behind that is that, you know, this is a great way for us to save money as a district. Um, yeah, they're, right. They're a district they, with limited resources. So they're like, okay, this is a way that we can get our students to get laptops and get, because like when you figure like if, you know, you're a one-to-one school with like, a couple thousand students and, you know, a couple hundred teachers, the licensing on just the software in those schools could be millions of dollars. Yeah. And this, this is where I think um, we bring in the, the equity piece, which is why are Absolutely. we talking about OER in this context? Well, we're talking about this largely from a socioeconomic, um, you know, point Absolutely. of view in terms of equity. So, so how do we think about under-resourced schools and how they get access to things that, heavily resourced schools have easy, well, easier access to, right? So OER was an intent, its intent was democratization specifically, um, or at least at least in part around the economics of that, right? So Linux was built that way. So it was, uh, there's always a sense of like, you can contribute um, and then some people did spin up their own versions of it where they charge money for it. And we can talk about how that process works, right? Because right. one of the things we're going to have to delve into is intellectual property and, and, and copyright and things like that, because those are related to this open educational resource movement. But, um, but it's, yeah, it's, it, it, a lot of it was about how do we make it so that corporate entities don't have control over things that are fundamental to how we do our lives, um, and, and then they can charge us what they want for it. Right. Well, I mean, I think more than that is what audience are they developing the curriculum for? Right. Oh and, yeah. Sorry. But, I was talking more broadly about the movie. Right. No, yeah. I know. But, so this is like the, you know, the dark underbelly of curriculum development, right. Is that, you know, most textbooks are, are developed not for, you know, some, you know, school district that is unique in its population, they're developing content, they're developing textbooks for the mass market. And specifically, they're targeting Texas and California. They're looking to align their curriculum because those are the biggest markets. And those are the ones where as a state, they have a state developed curriculum and they say textbooks have to be approved via these, this curriculum. And so they, you know, some textbook company is going to be like, all right, well, if I want to get into those markets, I've got to develop this textbook. And so they hit this market and that's the textbook that, you know, if you're out in, you know, some rural part of Pennsylvania, that's still the textbook you have op- uh, as an option. You know, there's no, right. you know, 
there's nothing that you as a teacher go, you know what, this isn't how I would teach it, or this isn't the language, you know, we have, it's not aligned to PA standards, it's aligned to something else. And so that's where the, the challenge, whenever you hand over curriculum development to, you know, these big, huge corporate entities, their only motivation is, I mean, their motivation is to provide, you know, quality, you know, materials, but the other side of it is they're trying to sell textbooks. Yeah. They're trying to make money. Yeah. yeah. And so th- their hope is, okay, quality. Yeah. We're going to provide these really, you know, great material. However, we're going to target these two populations and the rest of the, you know, other folks can suffer. That's know? right. Yeah. And that, and that, you know, going back to this sort of intellectual property issue or, or just generally the the intellectual content of things, right? right? Is you know, like you say, who's making those choices, and and uh, and how can we democratize that and make it so that people can have resources that suit their local community and and suit their local, I mean, values really. So yeah, sure. I mean, there've been a lot of really interesting projects that have come out of this idea of open uh, open resources. So um, so maybe we should take a second and say what that looks like in a general sense. Like what is, what is an open educational resource? How do you get Uh, one? And, and how is it different from like the textbook or even, you know, now there's e-textbooks and there's all sorts of other variants. So what is it that makes um, OER? Like, how do you get to call yourself OER? Yeah, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a good, some good driving questions here, Scott. So I guess that I think maybe the, the best place for us to talk about, Uh, this is to, you know, say where this exists in the whole copyright landscape, Mm, right? I think that, so there's copyright materials. These are things that like somebody, you know, has developed. And and the the real trick is that there's no, you know, big copyright entity that you have to like, it's not like a patent. Copyright in, in America is based on the time of creation. So if you, this right here, us creating this, we're content creators right now. This is we're developing this. This is a copyrighted thing right now. Um, we could prove our, our creation. And so it's copyrighted mm-hmm. for someone to use our podcast and do something with it. They would have to ask you and I as content creators to do something with it. Mm-hmm. So, and it, there's, it's a legal definition um, that's defined by, you know, creation dates, our lifespan, you know, all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, and so there's and, no. And I like, just want to be clear. Like I spend a lot of my day answering requests from people who want to do <laughs> stuff with our podcast. Yes, it I'm is. Like, yeah, no assistant. No, but no, I. You cannot I, give it to the UN membership. Uh, and yeah, yeah no, no, yeah. We're, we're, we are not getting a lot of those requests. However, <laughs> you, you know, but but we're all like any. I would say anybody who's listening to this has created some content that is copied. Sure. Yeah, you know that's copy like it's not copyrightable. copyrightable. Well, no, it's just copyrighted. They they because, they because it, it, they created it. Yeah, like, I see. Yeah, and so it's not like you have to. It's not like a patent is an idea. You know, like you have to patent an idea or something, a design of something. But if you've written something, if you've made some music, if you've written a poem or whatever, those things are all things that are copyrighted by the fact that you developed it and you created it. And it's into the world out of your own brain hole, you know? Oh, brain hole. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think one of the big examples that is worth mentioning here, since we are an education podcast and we're talking about open education stuff, is things like courses at a university. Like this yeah. has been a big thing, especially as we move to online courses, is is who owns that material? And And there are lots of... You know, companies like Pearson being the one that I know most about because they tried to work a deal with Penn State who want to come come in and take over the online um, courses. And then it's like, but the trick is then they own the intellectual property. They own that copyrighted material. So, yeah, it's it's a sticky wicket, right? Well, so if if something's copyrighted, whether it actually carries the big C on it or or not, um that limits how other people can use it. Right. So you, you can use some of it on part whether if yeah. you have for certain critique or for, for critique or for purpose. art or for education. So there's special exceptions to copyright based on certain populations. Education has a special, you know, exception, right. And it's called fair use and fair mm-hmm. use says you can use some of it 
and your teaching, but you can't use all of it. You can't just like go and say, you know, I got this, I found this great textbook that, you know, Pearson has created. I'm just going to make massive copies. And this happens a lot in schools where, you know, they'll find, you know, a workbook and they only have like one copy of a workbook or the district is only able to buy one copy of the, of the workbook. And so they tell teachers, Hey, just photocopy this off for your students. That's a copyright violation. You know, that workbook is designed to be something that's, you know, you reuse every year, you know, actually it's not reusable. Sorry. You're, right, it's something right. you're, it's, it's there. The companies, right. You repurchase it every year. And so making off copies of this is you're asking students, uh, teachers to break the law. Yeah. Right. And, and this gets even more slippery when we talk about electronic versions of all that. Stuff. Right. Absolutely. Because now and it's so, like, oh, I've got a, I've got an ebook of this thing and I'm just going to send it to Ollie. And yes. now, okay. Pay Ollie for has, one copy of it right. and now like go off and send it to others. So essentially the, the teachers are being asked to break the law. And, and so that's, that's working within the copyright realm. Okay. So that's the one part of the law. The other part of the law that I think is important to talk about is public domain. There's all this stuff that exists in the public domain. The public domain means that you can, you know, it's, it's been either created by some government entity or it's been something that's really old. Like, Mm -hmm. so like Shakespeare, like Shakespeare exists in the public domain. You could do anything you want with Shakespeare. That's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why you go into like, you know, a, a bookstore, you know, bookstores, they still exist here and there, but you go into bookstores and they'll have like, the compendium of all Shakespeare's, you know, poems or all Shakespeare's sonnets or all Shakespeare's plays. And you're like, oh my gosh, I can buy this for $12. Well, I mean, it's just basically paying for the the actual printing because no one's paying yep. the actual author of that because the author's <laughs> long dead, long right? Dead. Yeah, I yeah. mean, but that's, there's lots of these, like there's lots sure. of these types of, that's like, you know, if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, that's why you can go on to like, you know, iBooks and download like all download all the Sherlock Holmes things because they're free because there's they're in public domain. Like all yeah. this stuff exists in the public domain and feast on it as you wish. So yeah. those are the two ends of the, the spectrum. Now, what has happened is you know, people, you know, working really smart people said, you know what, what if we created this middle ground where if we had content creators who want to put stuff out there, but don't want it to be behind a wall, like a copyright. And they don't want to put it in a, in a public domain. Cause it's really, it's not, you can't put something into the public domain. So they created this other concept called creative commons and creative commons is the main mechanism in which things get in the open uh, world. Um, it's a separate licensing thing that you can say, okay, I created this, but I'm going to put this out there so other people can adapt, use, modify, depending on the licensing, um, so it's more open, more open mm-hmm. for people to use. Um, so creative commons is, is something that, you know, this is getting really academic and I apologize, but I think this yeah. is critical, but it's really critical for, and also the, you know, we were looking at some research before this and the, the folks who are actually knowledgeable about creative commons, public domain and, and copyright is pretty limited. Like I was yeah. we were shocked at like what the research showed in terms of the teachers that were, even though this is something I teach at Millersville. I don't know if this is something that sticks, right? Yeah. And I'll just, as a little piece of trivia, um, so there is a thing called Public Domain Day, which is like, which is January 1st. and, And on that day, all the things from a particular year become public domain. Right. So in January 1st, 2021, on Public Domain Day, all works from 1925 uh, became open. So it gives you a sense of how old things have to be. Right. right. Um, so basically it's a hundred years. It's not quite a hundred years, but it's based. So some of the ones that came in this past year were like uh, the great Gatsby um, and Franz Kafka's the trial. Right. So these are things that are now in the public domain. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know if you want to continue with Lawrence Lessig and the creative commons and how he thought about that and, and what he did, because I think that work is, is impressive and, and yeah, um, yeah amazing Larry, really. Yeah. I mean, Larry Lessig is like sort of the, the, uh, the grandfather, father of, of like OERs and creative commons and creative commons is basically a, you know, a repository where he's created this whole licensing play thing where he says, okay, you know, depending on these like icons that you add to a document, you can signify to somebody else how this thing, whatever you've created can be used. So a really good example is the intro and outro for our, our podcast. So if you ever look yeah. at it and go, Hey, like I hear that music, is it something Scott and Ollie did? It is absolutely not. What we did, absolutely what I not. did 
It's not. We didn't, we don't have. I don't have that kind of <laughs> musical talent. But what I did do was I went to uh, one of the open music sites and found some music that I thought was. And I sent Scott a whole bunch of ones to listen to that I thought were like kind of unique or interesting. And they were all open, meaning that they were somehow carried one of these Creative Commons icons that said, hey, you can use it in non-commercial ways, which this is a non-commercial thing. We're not making any money from this. Um, We are not. We are not. And it was also able to be modified. Um, So I just took a little snippet at the beginning. And the key is that I have to attribute it. So if you've ever looked right. at the show notes, you can see the, the, uh, the folks who developed this. And so all of that stuff is following Creative Commons rules because the creators of the, the song, I actually should. Notice of Eviction shot. by Legally Blind. Thank you. So You're those welcome. folks, uh, those, the Legally Blind folks uh, are the, <laughs> the, the band. band. Let's be clear, the Legally the, Blind folks. Yeah, the band. Sorry, yeah. that's right. <laughs> The, the band, they created the song and we thought it was, you know, really an interesting intro. It was kind of catchy. And so we're using like a, you know, a snippet of it, but we're attributing them. We're not breaking any rules because the band, they identified this as something that was modifiable. It's in the open you know, world. And this is actually taken off in the music industry because people are like just sampling from one another, pulling parts from it and just putting it back out there. And so, you know, my son is kind of like on the, you know, on, on the kind of like outer realm of this, like he has some friends who are doing a lot of creation in terms of making music and putting it out there. And it's like really cool to see the stuff that these kids are creating and making based on, you know, stuff that other people have done. So somebody's making lyrics, somebody's making music riffs, and they're all like, other people are just combining these things it's kind of cool to see. Mm. Um, and that's all based on the fact that they're just putting it out there in the open world and, and letting other people riff on it, you know, and that's awesome. So we've kind of gone down a rabbit hole as we tend to do. Um, yeah. yeah. So let's, let's cycle back to how this applies to open uh, educational resources. Um, OER stuff are, they can be textbooks, they could be simulations, they could be videos, they could be any sorts of resources, enti- entire courses, Mm-hmm. That people have yep. developed curricula that people have developed that are out there on different repositories that people can just go and freely use with their classes. So, like uh, I was out in schools um, earlier this week, and you know they were doing uh, a a lab ex- a lab activity, and I was talking to the teacher after, and he's like, "Yeah, I usually use this simulation with them." Um, but it, someone took it down and I was like, well, have you looked for this in like an open site? And so I directed him to one of the open sites and he's like, he found something that was really usable there and, and it's free and it's easy to use. And, and there's a lot of that that's out there that teachers can feast on and they can do it for free in most cases. Yep. Or as you say, very low cost, but, but especially with these kinds of things, it's almost always free. Right. Absolutely. And so, you know, with so for instance, like a textbook, like there are textbooks out there um, that, you know, from K to 12, there's all kinds of textbooks. If you as a teacher are in an under-resourced school and your district is saying, here, you have got to use this one workbook, make copies for your classes. There are materials like that, that are out there that are free, that now you don't have to break the law to do. You can actually print the stuff off because that's what the licensing allows you to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and in a lot of cases, the quality is just as strong as the quality in it because there are a whole host of people who are working on this stuff and developing it. Um, and so it's just knowing where to find this stuff. Yeah, and that's so, the thing, isn't it? Right. It's, yeah. it's, there's so much out there. Um, I mean, I, I want to also give a, uh, a shout out to a guy here at Penn State, um, Lee Giles, who is in the College of uh, IST. And one of the things he's been working on, and I haven't seen the newest version of this, but he he was developing a um, it, basically a textbook builder that would allow you to pick content, like sort of name the key ideas that you want to teach in your class. And then it would go out and find resources for you and essentially assemble a textbook. So it's an AI-based um, piece of software that lets you build your own textbook. And I'll see if I can find the links to that, but it was 
fascinating project that Lee's been working on for quite a few years. Um, and uh, so it's another example of, of, you know, how you can take advantage of things like uh, public domain and, and creative commons uh, resources to create really productive and useful tools um, for very low cost, which is really right. the goal, right? Yeah. I, I, if I was starting, like if it, like you're listening to this episode and this is the first time you've heard of open educational resources, I would encourage you to go talk to your librarian. You know, it's your school. Um, if, the, if your school still has one, you know, <laughs> um, I hope so. I hope so too, because librarians are awesome. Um, yeah. My mom's a librarian or was, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Librarians are, are, are the most curious people in the world and uh, we love them for that. And they're always people who can, if they don't know the answer, they're going to help you find it. And so um, I would start with them. Or if you don't have a librarian, I, 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 I'm sorry for that, but you should go off and, you know, go to OER Commons, OERcommons.org. And if you go, that's a really good starting point um, for finding things. So what, what you can go in and say, okay, I'm looking for this content area, you know, so you can, there's a little drop downs. So I'm looking for something physical science related. Uh, and I'm ask you for educational level. You can say, I'm at the middle school. And then, you know, it connects to, and what's really great about OER Commons is there's a drop down where it says, okay, I'm working in North Dakota. I'm going to select the North Dakota standards, or I'm working in Pennsylvania or Wyoming or Oregon or whatever. There are drop-down standards that you connect it to. So if you're really standard-minded and you want to make sure that the stuff that's been developed is somehow connected to that, you can do that. Um, and then you could also spe be specific and say, I'm looking for videos or I'm looking for a simulation or I'm looking for whatever resource that you're looking for in your classroom. You can tailor that window, that search window for that. And then it gives you links to it. Yeah, the, which is yeah, yeah, which is ahead. really powerful, which is awesome. Right, right. And again, the idea being that it, now we want to be careful, right? I mean, in the sense that, it, and and I saw this with with Lee's tool as well. Like, it's powerful, but it also requires more curation from from yeah. the teacher because because these resources are. I mean, as much as there are disadvantages to textbooks, one of the advantages of textbooks is they're vetted. They're heavily vetted. Somebody reads them. There's editors to look at them. There's lots of people that pay attention to things that teachers might care about, like that the content is appropriate for the age level and that right. there's not any sort of things in there that are going to cause political or personal issues for the students in your classroom or for the parents of your students or whatever. So, you know, they, they're not, you know, open educational resources are not a panacea because right. they're, they're open. And unless, and, you know, it's just like anything else, if they're not from a trusted source and they haven't been vetted by somebody that you believe is going to do a good job, then either you have to do that vetting or you have to not use those resources. So, so it isn't, um, you know, it doesn't solve all problems. Well, and yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And I think that the other part that it, you know, you have to be mindful of is that most school districts have some sort of, you know, textbook approval policy. So right. don't go rogue. Don't go and say, hey, I'm going to do this and just start using this instead of the textbook that's been approved by my school board. Right. Um, but I would say that if you're thoughtful and intentional with this and you find something that's really useful um even if it's not perfect it's something where you can modify it and make it more perfect like so like for instance like one of the things that i always came into was terminology like the terminology of something that i taught in physics maybe didn't always match the terminology that a textbook would use and so i was always looking for like that was one of those litmus tests that i would mm -hmm. use as i was like looking for new textbooks i would go okay is this match the way i like the order I teach things and the terminology that I use, yep. because I didn't want to be like, well, they're calling it this and I'm calling it this. And there's all, and, and sometimes it's subtle, but the great thing about OER is if I find a textbook that I, I like that maybe doesn't use that terminology, I could do that, you know, search and find thing and, you know, replace. And every mm -hmm. time it uses this phrase, I could use this phrase instead. That's the great thing about this is that most of these things are adaptable so that you can modify them for your population. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if like I would, you know, <laughs> I would have textbooks in which I knew that, you know, problem number 13 was wrong 
right in this chapter mm-hmm. and, yeah, the, yeah. and the answer was wrong in the back but it was going to be wrong until i bought the next version of the textbook right. you know which we right, were on right. like a 12 year cycle or something for you know new textbooks in in my district well now you can essentially just go you know what uh i'm gonna make make that change you know yep. and so the answer at the back is now correct mm-hmm. um so that does put the individual teachers into the driver's seat a little better you yeah. know a little more and i think that's powerful yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, right. I don't, I have, I have a, an, another thing I want to talk about related to this, but, but I don't want to derail us. So um, at some point I want to talk about the impact of openness on, um, on journals, uh, you know, cause oh, we're yeah. academics. So I want to talk yeah. a little bit about that. Um, so uh, I, I, I just want to put a pin in that for the moment, but. Well, I, I would say the, the good lead in is I think the, you know, what you as a teacher can do with this. So, mm. and then we'll get to, to the scholarship piece. Cause yeah. I think that's a good, you know, um, you know, lead into that. Yeah. So as a teacher, if you find something really useful and you modify it, most of the licensing requires that you put it back out into the, you know, the wild with the same licensing. So you put it back on like, you know, upload it to, and on OER Commons, it just says, oh, you, there's a big green button, add OER, and you can upload yeah. it and you can put it into that sort of, you know, landscape for other people to find and use it too. Um, and so that's the sort of the mentality that you have to get into is that, you know, you're not just a, uh, a user of OER, but you're a creator of OER mm-hmm. too. And yeah. so it's the give and take of this, that we're all in this together. It's the absolute opposite of teachers pay teachers, right? For teachers yeah. pay teachers, I've created this worksheet and I'm going to sell it to other people while in the OER world, I've created this worksheet and I'm going to get value over the fact that other people are going to use it. And, and while it doesn't, you know, pad your bank account, there's a lot of us who, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, I've, I get a kick out of people using stuff that I've created. And Mm -hmm. so if I'm able to create something and somebody's like, Hey, I really found this useful. Um, I just get a kick out of that. And, yeah. um, and that to me is probably better than the, you know, a couple of dollars I would have made from putting behind a payoff. Right. Yeah. And, but I, it, it, yeah, just to say though, that, I mean, all of this as always is complicated, right? So if you think yeah. about what this has done in the music industry, it's been a real double-edged sword, right? Cause, yeah. cause now everybody thinks that music should just be free. Um, basically, because the vast majority of, of especially up and coming musicians, they put music out in a way that is free. Either they put it up on Bandcamp or they put it on YouTube or wherever they, they're going to put this Spotify. And, um, and in some cases they're making money, but in a lot of cases they're not. Um, and then that gives us, you know, it, it has the potential to diminish our sense of the value of the creation of intellectual property, right? To say like, oh yeah, well you made it, but why should I pay you for that? Um, so, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to pour cold water on OER. I think it's good. And I think these, these movements are powerful. Um, but I think there's also, you know, as long as we're, we live in a society where you need money to live, like you, you get into weird territory when you want all intellectual property to be free. And I'm not saying that's what we're arguing for, but, no. but, but, I, um, but I think that what we are arguing for is ways in which we can include more people into the, the process, right. Yeah. <laughs> and that we can in, in, increase the access to things. Like if, if the only way you can get music is if you have money, then that, you know, privileges a certain population of people, you know, if the only way that you can get new textbooks is by your district being wealthy, then that privileges certain populations in certain districts. And so we have school districts in, in the United States in which they're using textbooks that are 20, 30 years old and they're duct taped together. And, and that to me is, is it, is a tragedy. And that in many cases that content's out of date in many, uh, they're sharing textbooks, and so, you know, OER is an oppor- opportunity for that and in order to bridge that gap and to increase, you know, equity. Um, and that's, that's an important thing for me. Yeah, and, I agree. And, and I guess for me, that's now a transition into this issue I wanted to bring up because, sure. um, because one of the things I, I currently serve on the board for my national organization, NARST, which is a science education um, organization and our, we have a flagship journal, the Journal of Research and Science Teaching, and um, and that journal is put out by a publisher and it's behind a paywall. And 
one of the things that we've been grappling with as a board is the change in the way that those publishers organize their uh, their revenue models, right? So if you can imagine, like traditionally before the internet in particular, like if you wanted a journal, you had to subscribe to it. And so that means you either joined the organization and got a subscription as part of that or your library join some consortium of things that got them a bunch of journals and the journals sat on shelves and you could go in and make a copyright or you could make a photocopy of that thing and bring it home. Right. So, so we've had a subscription model for a very long time with journals. Um, but increasingly as we've moved into uh, for a lot, there've been lots of pressures to open journals up. Right. So there are flat out open journals. And then there has been a, uh, you've always, well, not always, you've relatively recently been able to pay to make your your article open, right? So, so we've gotten to the point now where people don't tend to think of journals as a bound edition, but as individual articles, right? So people right. don't don't want a subscription. They just want to go in and get the article they want and download it. And that's what they want. So it's driven by that sort of a model. Well, so this is so what happens now is if you want your article to be open, which is to say not behind a paywall, but you want it in this journal, you can do that, but you have to you, the author, has to pay for that. Right. And the, and that fee can sometimes be quite expensive. Now, science journals have done this for years, right? Where, you know, if you want to get an article in nature, you got to pay three, four thousand dollars. And that's if you don't want color images and you, you know, there's so, so there is a cost to publishing. And so, so while it, while this, the equity, the good side of the equity is that it opens up this knowledge to more and more people to get right. access to primary sources. The flip side of that is it closes down the ability to contribute that knowledge to the field, because now you, if you want to be able to publish something, you got to pay for it. Yeah. And if you don't pay for it, people may not see it and may not use it. And therefore it's going to impact, you know, the the impact of that research. So so the, there's always a complicated relationship between the production of something and the valuing and paying for it and and how to figure that out and I think you know that's the the interesting thing is that we've we've become much more self-conscious about that and talked about it as a result of movements like OER and creative commons and and the internet which you know just the idea of you know there's no we no longer have to worry about a copy of something degrading. So, you know, if, if I had a copy of a really cool book and I wanted to share it with you, you know, before electronic versions of that, it was difficult, right? I could yeah. go to and photocopy every single page, but that was very time intensive. And the quality of the thing that got produced was pretty low compared to the original. But now, you know, I can get a perfect electronic version of all sorts of books, um, you know, we talked about Z library at one point, which is that, you know, that open resource. And I still don't know how they do that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's open. Let's, let's make sure it's not open in the traditional, uh, in the, in the sense of what you're describing, but it, but it is a, a website that has all these things available in it. And so you wonder like, well, how are they managing that given the copyright world we live in? I think I I think as I've looked into it more, it's oh, a, you've looked into it more. I have looked into it a little bit more since you shared it. Um, it's it's using the model. Okay, I'm going to break the law until someone tells me not to. <laughs> I think that's the Z Library model. It's like I'm going to violate copyright until they the copyright holder catches on. And so, while it's a great resource. It is also a little sketchy from my perspective. <laughs> so, so what you're saying is if you use the library, you may be breaking the law. So just be aware. Be aware. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, I mean, like, let's, let's face it. There are lots, like when I tell my students about this, they go, so, you know, have, uh, do you break copyright law? And I'm like, okay, look, I speed. I, I like, I'm, yeah. I, I get in my car and almost I was, every time I, uh, yeah, I was thinking of that analogy too. Uh, almost every time I drive someplace, I'm I'm going to break the speed limit, and and I know knowingly do this, and that doesn't uh, make me less culpable, right? By doing it, and the frequency that I do it doesn't make me any less culpable. If someone pulls me over, I'm like you know going to get a ticket, and I just have to suck it up and take it. Yeah. Um, so there are teachers, and when I was a teacher, you know, in a K to twelve setting, there are times when I've made copies of things to hand out to my students because, you know, I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to do this because it's the best, you know, the it's the benefit of my students in this moment. Yeah. This is the decision. So that 
I, I guess we should listen to our better angels as yeah. often as we can and, yeah. and knowingly do that. And that's the thing that I would encourage you to do. And, and, you know, in, with Z library, have I used Z library? Yes. Since you shared it, yeah. I, like there were students who came to me who go, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm working two jobs. I'm really stuck for this. I can't find, you know, this, I can't buy the $40 textbook right now. Uh, I'll get it in like two or three weeks. And I'm like, have you looked on Z library? And like, what's Z library? I go, I don't know. You should check Google Z library. It might be on there. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's there. I know it's there. I don't know where it tell, is. But, but I'm not, here's what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to download it to them, download and, it and, and then give it send to it to them. them. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to put it in their, you know, court. I'm going to say, hey, check out Z Library. I don't know. It's a place. It's a repository for things. And I know the book that I'm using is is there, but I'm not going to download it. I'm not going to go. That's that's a that's a bridge too far. Bridge too me. far for you, right? Yeah. And well, and I think you know this goes to um, you know people who are committed. You know, like it's like the NPR model, right? Like NPR is free, but it's not free. Right. So it, it requires resources to do that work. And so if you want to keep NPR around, you have to contribute. And a lot of um, a lot of resources that fall into this OER category have some version of that. Right. Where if you want to, I mean, we're an example of this. Right. Like we are right. creating free content. We don't have a way um, for you to contribute to us currently, um, but there are lots of podcasts that that's their model, right? They right. they put stuff out there and and then they say, look, if you want to pay, great. Here's how you can pay. And I think you know there there are there are nice things about that model, and there are people who then um, are committed to saying, look, these these creators are people that I that bring value to my life. You know, like I do this and I'm sure you do too. Like there are, there are many podcasts that I subscribe to that I pay yeah. some, you know, five bucks a month or yeah. whatever it is um, to them because they bring tremendous value to my life because I listen to their, their work all the time. And so, you know, there, that's this sort of middle ground between purely open where it's just free um, and this somewhat, middle, uh, you know, middle ground where you pay if you want, or you pay if you can, or you pay what you can. Um, and I think, I think that's, yeah, I think it's, it's good to have sort of an ecosystem of these models. Cycling back to the open scholarship thing. I think that there are some journals who are entering that landscape that are open from the beginning. And yeah. I think those journals are, you know, not requiring any sorts of costs or, or very minimal costs. I think the ones that are like putting on these huge costs onto the authors are the ones that are trying to navigate how as, as existing as a traditional journal and how can they still have some sort of same, the same economic model and be provide open access to. And I think right. that's the challenge for, for those, but there are, uh, you know, a bunch of open journals but I think that there's the perception of lesser quality. Like if it's in the open, if it was really good stuff, it'd be behind a paywall. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's where I would, I would encourage people to not have that bias, like evaluate, use the same sorts of, cause there's stuff that gets published that I just go, how did this get published? Why right. is this behind a paywall? And, and who was the, who are the folks who vetted this, you know? And so sure. there's not, I mean, and even stuff that gets in like really high impact journals, I sometimes have that same sort of like, this is just, you know, yeah. Right. But I think there are different metrics of quality too, right? So you're sure. talking about like the intrinsic quality of the scholarship versus the the quality of the of the manuscript itself, right? So I think one of the things that we have to be clear about is that doing journal work, whether that's for a, for a company like a a publisher or whether that's in an open journal, like that does require work, right? So, right. so, um, and if that work is not present, then the, the quality in the sense of, you know, the organization of the website and, and the way the manuscripts look and all the other, you know, type typesetting is still a thing, even though we don't typeset, like yeah. you take, you know, you can't just, well, you can, you, but if you just put raw word documents up for your journal, like that starts to look like a mess. Right. Yeah, so, it so it isn't, um, this isn't work-free environment and, you know, copy editing and other things that, that 
um, are provided by these publishers do add value to the to the material. So that that work has to be taken up by somebody. And in these open journals, there's often a sense of like, okay, well, it's like Wikipedia. There are going to be a few people who do a lot of work to organize that, and yeah. they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, or maybe they get contributions in some way, or maybe they, you know are funded, right? So many times this can happen through um, through some kind of external funding. So it, that's why a lot of these journals are in science because there's a lot of money in science. And so they yeah. can slice off some of that money and turn it into, okay, well, we're going to hire somebody to run our journal for us, or we're going to ask people to contribute. Um, so it, yeah, it is like open. Also, um, we have to be careful. Doesn't mean free, especially for the producer, um, so, so those open journals, somebody's paying somebody somehow to do whatever that work is to make that journal a viable, you know, entity. So, um, yeah, well, so it's, I, yeah. The, the last thing I would say is, you know, uh, there's lots of great resources out there besides OER Commons, check out the open Syed. We've talked about this before that's specific to science education yeah. in K to 12 settings there. It's, it's, it's grant funded. So there's lots of grant money behind it to help yep. it. And it, it's, and the, it is curated by really smart people who yeah. are passionate about this, who are saying, you know, Hey, uh, and there's like simulations and videos and all that. So, you yep. know, and we know there are a bunch of science edu- uh, educators out there who are listening to this. Go, that would probably be the place I would start. OER Commons and Open Syed, you know, those are great places. If you're not a science person, go to OER Commons because it's it's across disciplines, and so that's the the great thing about that tool, that site, that tool. Um, yeah, yeah. OER. So there we are. From it, it, it's it's an equity movement. It's an inclusive movement. It's one that's going to get more content into more hands and that i think is 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 important yeah yeah nice yeah all right all right so so i got a joy and it's relevant so and i didn't actually even realize it was relevant until we got into this conversation so um so the the joy that i'm gonna that i'm gonna pick for this week i don't know what what the right verb is for this um is uh, is bookstores and in particular independent bookstores. So we have one in state college called Webster's bookstore and cafe, and it's, um, it sells new and used books. It sells vinyl. It's got a, it's got a cafe that has like, you know, baked goods and other food and, and then tea and coffee. Right. And it's, it's just, I haven't been there for obvious and many reasons uh, for a long time, but this week I was back uh, and it just reminded me um, how much I love bookstores, right? Like as a kid, I grew up in Ann Arbor and Borders, the original Borders, before it became a national giant chain of bookstores, there was only one Borders bookstore and it was owned by Tom Border uh, Borders. And it, um, and it was in downtown Ann Arbor, and it was like the gig to get. If you're a graduate student, especially in, in the humanities, like getting a job at Borders meant that they really thought you knew your stuff because you had to be really thoughtful and knowledgeable to, to work in that place. And it was just such a an amazing bookstore. And I remember it growing up and, and it just totally imprinted, like it's my it's my platonic ideal of what a bookstore was. And um and so I just, you know, and there aren't many independent bookstores left, uh, and especially used bookstores. Um, so, you know, I just encourage you in the same way that you were talking about reaching out to librarians, I encourage you to find a local bookstore and go, um, you know, we, we, these are precious resources and I hope we can, can keep them around. So, um, and if you're in state college, visit Webster's it's, it's a, it's you know, it's it's an institution in State College. It's been here for decades, um, and uh, and it's just a wonderful place. And it it, it it's nice to be around books. So that's yeah, my I, joy. I, I we love bookstores and yeah. our family. Like we when we yeah. travel, we like tend to seek out what the big bookstore is. Um, so like when we went to Portland, we went to Powell's. When we went sure. to New York City, we went to the, the Strand. Yeah. So it's so so cool to go to places where they, these these you know, legacy bookstores have been there for, you know, years and years. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Powell's is amazing. Um, All right. So my, my, uh, my joy this week is uh, a Netflix show called sex education. And so so it is so good. And 
Uh, it's in its third season, and this third season just dropped like maybe a couple weeks ago. And so we're slowly we're on our, we're on the last episode, and we're kind of like waiting to finish because it's it's like it's like you have something so good that you want to savor it and you don't want to finish it. And yeah. so it's it, that's where we are. I, I would say it's a difficult watch. So if you're somebody who um, gets uncomfortable around like um, sexual situations this is something you probably want to steer clear of because it's, it involves like kids who are navigating their, you know, sexual identities. And, and yeah. so it's really built around these two characters who start offering sex advice to their classmates. Um, but then it becomes like this really, you know, big story with lots of characters and lots of people that are intertwined and, it's really great. And I think the thing that I like the most about it is that it's, it's meta, like the, 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 it's called sex education and, you know, and there's a lot of education that's happening for the people, the characters in the show. Mm -hmm. But the great thing about it is it's also sex education for the viewer. Mm. So especially in season three, not to get like too like into like the nuts and bolts of it, but they're really big on representation. So mm -hmm. they have people play the characters in which they're actually representing. So there's a there's one character who uses a wheelchair because he's um, I think he's a, he's paraplegic. He has, you know, he's uh, through an injury, something he, but the uh, he's only he's paralyzed from his like waist down. Um, and so there's an intimate moment that involves him and that he's really a character. Like, I mean, he's in real life. This is somebody who's a wheelchair and who is a yeah. paraplegic. Um, and, but then through the conversation of him and his partner, you learn as the viewer, what it's like to be that person. Yeah. And so you it's, it's sex education for you too, because you're finding out like, I don't know if you've ever wondered, but like, this is like how this happens. And it's like right. really interesting and educational and it's educational from so many different perspectives, you know, like, and, and I think that is in itself valuable. Um, it's, it's really well written. It's such well, it's so, so, so much good acting in it. It's great. It's so mm -hmm. awesome. And it hurts my heart sometimes because the characters go through some really difficult moments. Um, but sex education is pretty awesome and it's yeah. funny at times. Yeah. I second that. Yeah. I, I haven't seen season three, but, um, but I really have enjoyed the show. Um, so yeah. I'm, yeah. Season three is really awesome, Scott. You should check it out. Yeah. Right. So put that on your, your list. I'll add it to my queue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are. Episode we are. 62, not 61, 62 not six, is not 61, not 61. So yeah. 62. Yeah. All right. All right. I guess we'll catch you next time. Yeah, in between. See you then.